This is a reading from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, Forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. We still don't have a printer working with Wesley, so y'all should pray more about that. <laughs> so this is our last well gathering for the fall quarter. And it's okay, we're still, I mean, you can still come worship here and eat waffles as well next week, but this is the last well proper uh, for the fall quarter. And as we come to these final verses of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is still praying for the Ephesians, or he's still at least uh, telling them about his prayer for them, which is what he has been doing since the end of the first half of chapter 1. So from about halfway through chapter 1, it's all the way up until the end of our reading tonight, that whole time, Paul is essentially, with, with some minor uh, hi hiatuses in there, praying or elucidating, telling the Ephesians how he's been praying for them. In fact, verses 14 through 19 of our reading tonight are one long sentence. Paul is a wordy person who loves long sentences. Uh, he does this thing where he sort of is piling on. Uh, he, it's never enough for him to say, I'm praying this thing for you. But he's like, this thing for you, so that, so that, so that. It's like this like Russian nesting doll kind of sentence structure, if that makes sense. So verses 14 through 19 are one long sentence, and they are kind of the crescendo of this three chapters long prayer that he's praying for the Ephesians. And similarly to the end of chapter 1, Paul is continuing to pray for the Ephesians to receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, in short, at the heart of it, that's what this prayer is for, is that he wants them to receive the Holy Spirit and he's elucidating the superabundant cascade of blessings which follow upon the gift of the Holy Spirit or all the other stuff that sort of flows out of the gift of the Spirit like a cornucopia kind of bursting outward. The upshot of all of that blessing is this phrase, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's where the prayer kind of finally comes to rest and he's finally willing to put a period in short, that, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that's what the Holy Spirit accomplishes. So we want to pay attention to the Holy Spirit accomplishing in our reading this evening. We want to pay attention to the way that the Holy Spirit fills us with all the fullness of God. And rather than tracing each step to get to the destination in the way that I typically do on Tuesday nights, I want to try just starting right there at the end. Paul wants the Christians at Ephesus to be filled up. He wants them to be filled up. 
He wants them to be full of the fullness of God's own self. First of all, what a remarkable thing to want for people. What a remarkable thing to be praying for people. But the question I want to ask you is this. Here at the end of this quarter, amid all the joys and disappointments of this school year so far, whether you have succeeded in all your plans or whether you have failed, or whether you can even remember what your plans were at the beginning of this quarter, here at the end of this quarter, whether this has been a season of overwork for you, or even if it's been in a season of extravagant work avoidance for you. Whether you are a student at tech or you are an intern or anything else. Whether you're an English major or an engineering student. Whether you are an upper or lower class man or woman. My question for you is this. Are you full right now? Are you full? Are you filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying. He's praying that Christians would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what he wants. Is that what you want for yourself? Do you want to be filled with all the fullness of God? Do you remember what that's like? Has that ever been a thing for you before? And if it has been a thing for you before, can you remember what that is like? What's it like for you to remember that? I think Paul's prayer in these verses remains mostly unanswered for most Christians I know most of the time. I think for the most part, Paul's prayer remains unanswered for most Christians most of the time. And I think this is a prayer that remains unanswered most of the time, not because God is not faithful to answer it. This really is who the Holy Spirit is. He really is willing. He is the one who wants to and does fill us with all the fullness of God. So that's true. That's who he really is. It's not that God isn't delivering on or unwilling to answer this prayer. It's not even necessarily because we are unfaithful. So like lots of sermons, you know, the answer that you expect is like, the problem is you because you suck in these ways and you're not doing what you're supposed to do in these ways. And there's an extent to which you're going to get some of that in the sermon, but it's a little more subtle than that. It's not even necessarily that that prayer goes unanswered because we're just uncomplicatedly unfaithful. It's not because we're being badly behaved or sinning too much. That's not why, for the most part, this prayer that we'd be filled with all the fullness of God usually goes unanswered. In fact, some of the most outwardly holy and hardest working Christians I know are often liable to be some of the least full of God people that I know. And I don't mean like it's a fake holiness. I mean like they really are. You couldn't really say they're not being faithful. And yet they're visibly not full. I can attest that at the rare times I myself have been able to look myself in the mirror and think, I think I'm being faithful in a pretty uncomplicated or indisputable way. Like all the metrics, like real or imagined, that I use to, to understand, am I being faithful or not? The rare times that I've been able to say, yeah, I'm living a faithful life right now. A lot of those times have also been some of the emptiest, not full times in my life. 
And so just based off my anecdotal observation, it seems to me that what it means for us to be filled with all the fullness of God, it isn't just uncomplicatedly a matter of whether or not we're being faithful. Instead, I think Paul's prayer for us remains unanswered most of the time because we so rarely enter within the part of our creaturehood where God answers this prayer. And here's the thing. That's not really like a shame on you kind of thing, right? It's like a we're depriving ourselves of goodness kind of thing. The reason this prayer remains mostly unanswered is because we so rarely enter within the part of our creaturehood where God answers this prayer. Indeed, Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 is all about the where. In these latter verses of this chapter, both we, ourselves, folks, people, both we and the love of God are described as places. We're described as a place, and God's love is described in spatial terms as where's. All right, W-H-E-R-E, aware. In Ephesians chapter 3, we are aware. Human beings are described as a place, a dwelling, a habitation. We've already discussed at some length the way that the church is supposed to be a dwelling place for God. We've talked about that for, you know, one and a half or two weeks-ish. But here we need to attend the way that that's what human beings are too. We ourselves are a dwelling place and a habitation. That the Holy Spirit makes us a habitation of God is already evident by the time we get to verse 16. Paul prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power through God's Spirit, not just in general. He doesn't just say, hey, I want you to, be, to have strength, but he gives the strength a location, a specific dimension of our personhood in which he wants us to be strengthened. Strengthen with power through his spirit in your inner being. Already folks here are starting to sound like things that have an inside and an outside. And not just like we've got guts and we've got skin, but like there's some kind of space in there in what we are. We're already being described here like vessels or rooms. And that image is specified and expanded in verse 17 so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What is that? Your inner being. I think intuitively we know that there is such a thing. I think for the most part we, we have a sense like that that is a thing. Something exists that we could think of as our inner being, even if we don't think about it without Paul mentioning it. We know there's such a thing as an inner being because we know what it's like for our inner being to feel strengthened or, or not. To feel either full or empty. But when we hear the phrase, strengthened with power... These words, strength and power, like we come to the text already having preconceived and often kind of abstract, free-floating ideas about what words like that mean. And if we're not careful to let the, the scripture actually discipline those kinds of words, then we're not going to catch what the Lord is saying to us here. So when we hear phrases like strengthen with power, our attention is liable to drift 
almost automatically not to our inner being, but exactly the opposite, to the space of exterior venues of action. We may know that there's an interior dimension to our creaturehood. We might know, however little we pay attention to it, that we have an inner being, but we attribute to that inner being, probably, if we attribute any attention to it at all, the same kind of importance that we attribute to like a gas tank or maybe to our our stomach. We think about our inner being briefly, to put it briefly, as like a, a repository of fuel for something else. So when we hear verse 16, we're liable to be stoked about it, right? Like, yes, we want to be strengthened, but we're liable to be stoked in the same way we'd be stoked if somebody gave us a free gift card to the gas station or a gift card for a free meal to someplace where we really want to eat. We hear strength and power in my inner being, and probably most of us pretty immediately recognize our need for it, for what Paul's describing, But what we are liable to think is, yeah, I need that strength and I need that power in my inner being because I've got lots of places to go and lots of stuff to do. And so I need fuel. We hear those words and we we think that what we're being promised or prayed for is like just fodder for our, our, our voracious autonomy, for all the pre existing projects that we already have. And we have a lot of good projects, by the way. I'm not coming for our projects here. We have a lot of very justifiable, good things that we do need energy for. In my own life, just briefly, to to point this out, what I'm saying is like, I would rather write stuff about God which is one of the main projects of my vocation as a preacher, then do what Paul's talking about here. Then be with God in my inner being. And I am liable to exchange the strength and the power that Paul is actually talking about here for very good and justifiable things like writing sermons, right? Which is not a bad thing. And yet, what Paul's prayer imagines, when he imagines, when he's praying for our inner being, he conceives of our inner being very differently than as a gas tank, or as like a repository or fuel or fodder for our our projects, for other stuff that we need to get done. He doesn't envision it as a gas tank. He envisions it as a dwelling place. The strength and power that Paul is praying for is not just power and strength for pre-existing purposes and plans. It's strength and power that's ordered toward making room for Jesus within us. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That's what the strength and power is ordered toward. It's not a strength that enables us to do more faster. But to the contrary, it's a slow, formidable strength like a tree that has its roots plunged down deep in nourishing soil. Paul wants us to be rooted and grounded in love. Rather than some raw material that avails itself to our agency, to our will, whatever it is that we want to do with it, the Holy Spirit makes room in us 
into which Jesus himself can be welcomed. And Christ, in his own person, who indwells us through the work of the Holy Spirit, what he does as he inhabits us, rather than just writing us a blank check to get on to whatever destination we've determined ahead of time for ourselves, he takes us somewhere else, which may or may not have anything to do with the destinations that we've set out for ourselves. What Jesus does as he indwells us by the power of the Holy Spirit is he brings us into the unfathomable expanse of his love for us. That's the place where he takes us. Is it into the, into the unfathomable expanse of his love for us? That you, verses 18 and 19, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. That sounds like measuring words, fathoming. But then he goes on to say, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And again, what we're dealing with, with this word, with these knowledge words, are similar to what we talked about at the beginning of our series. The knowledge or the comprehension that Paul is praying for here, the comprehension that's accomplished by the Holy Spirit, is a knowledge of being brought into something, of finding, some, finding ourselves somewhere. It's, it's a knowledge of being gotten hold of rather than getting a hold of something else. What it's like to be in the place of the love of God. What it's like to enter into our inner being. What that's like is being loved by God. And fathoming, fathoming it, the, the vastness of God's love. And yet in the very activity of fathoming it, not being capable of fully fathoming it. And in and through that, being filled with all the fullness of God. So to summarize, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives amounts to an ever-increasing, uncomprehending comprehension of how much Jesus loves us. And this comprehension, as much as it sounds to us like a, an analytical word or analytical kind of knowing, it is instead an engulfing kind of knowledge, like we talked about in week one. With all that in mind, how is your inner being? Again, I just want to return to this initial question. Are you filled with all the fullness of God? It seems to me that if your answer to that question is no, I'm not full, that the right word for your inner being, if it's not full, the right word for your inner being might not just be like empty, but the word actually that comes to mind for me is weary. If you're not full, then I wonder if the descriptor weariness might be the right one for you. Or maybe the word raggedy. This is a word that Alana used to describe me recently. <laughs> uh, I can't remember all the conversation, but we were, uh, you know, I was here with my family uh, a few weeks ago <laughs> at Eucharist, and... Um, I don't know, Alana was asking me afterwards, like, uh, how I was doing, and I think it was something along the lines of, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of tired, and she's like, yeah, you look tired, and I was like, oh, really? And she's like, yeah, I mean, you look raggedy. You guys all look raggedy. Uh, and while it is certainly true that um, I'm liable to, like, physically look raggedy, 
um, you know, maybe all the time. Uh, I think, especially since it's the day that Holly wasn't working, she was with us, you know, there's like a, a limit to the raggediness, um, exterior raggediness that I think uh, might have been evident. I, I suspect that maybe Alana was seeing something in my eyes and my inner being in that moment, right? That is not something she says. Yeah, that's true. That's right. No, it's fair. It's totally fair. So weariness or raggediness. We live with weariness in our inner being as if it is necessary or it is the norm to the degree that we don't even notice it anymore, even though it's not necessary that we live that raggedy in our inner beings. And if you can remember what it's like to be strengthened in your inner being, to be full of all the fullness of God, what that memory might be like for you um, is when you, like, you can get used to not sleeping, too, um, for, like, really extended periods of time. Um, like, not, like, like, sleeping in a mouth that will eventually kill you or give you dementia is something you can, like, do for a long time, and it seems like everything's okay. And then if one day you do, or for a few days, because it usually takes a while, you do actually get a good sleep, you're like, oh my gosh, this is what it's like to be a human being in the world. Like, you feel literally like a totally different person. And so when you're trying to remember what it's like to be strengthened in your inner being, to be full instead of weary, it can be like a dim memory. And sometimes the only way to actually remember is to actually be filled in the same way that to remember what it's like to be a person that has slept. you got to sleep. One broad cause of weariness in our inner being is... This is super broad, and there's all kinds of ways this can, can shake out. But it's trying to be filled by anything except the person of Jesus. This description, that you may be filled with all the fullness, that is unambiguously language of satiety, of being satisfied. Not just being, like, packed full of something, but, like, it's, it's being satisfied, being satiated. And one broad cause of weariness is attempting to be satisfied, attempting to find your life and to live off of anything other than the very person of Christ. St. Augustine was right whenever he prayed to God in his confessions, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that prayer is something that takes your number whether you are a Christian or not. If you're not already a believer, this is a word addressed to you. You're not going to be full. You're not going to be all the way alive, apart from the very person of Christ filling you. And if you already are a Christian, the same word is addressed to you. Because despite the fact that we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are incredibly adept at forgetting that the very person of Christ is the only thing that is actually going to satisfy us. And again, I want to be really clear here. This isn't a guilt trip for anyone. This is not a shame on you. It's just stating this is what's actually going to fill you up. It's actually what you want, even if you've forgotten that it's what you want. The very person of Christ So we're weary 
in very broad terms, frequently, if we're weary, it's because we're trying to be filled by something other than the very person of Christ. Relatedly, more specifically, the cause of weariness in our lives is a habitual neglect or even just a complete lack of an interior life. It's just the lack or neglect of an interior life. The life of the Spirit is a life of prayer. All right? Life of the Spirit is a life of prayer. And a hugely important dimension of the life of prayer through which the Spirit does His work is a specific kind of prayer, or maybe I should say a specific category of prayer, which is properly named contemplative prayer. The phrase, so I'm going to try to explain what I mean by, by like a neglect of interior life and contemplative prayer here. And I'm going to do it by trying to, to, to sort of parse out the way that the, that phrase inner being suggests, even though it doesn't spell out, it suggests a contrast to whatever the exterior dimension of our life or being would be. All right. And even though Paul doesn't enumerate them, I think that we can posit a few dimensions of the contrast of the contrast between our interior and exterior creaturehood and try to sketch that out on the basis of some of, some of what we have here in Ephesians, but also on the basis of, of the Christian spiritual tradition between the, the interior and exterior life. By the way, if I forget to say this later, what this is not, what this contrast is not about is a contrast between like spiritual and physical things, right? It's not a contrast between bodily, like your flesh versus something that isn't your flesh, but that is also you, all right? So this isn't an anti-your-enfleshed person thing. Anyway, moving on. Um, okay, so there's two different levels of this contrast I want to draw, okay? The first level of contrast or register of contrast between interior and exterior that I want to draw is value neutral, all right? Uh, at this initial level of contrast between interior and exterior, I'm just going gonna, gonna to be sort of describing these two things as different but complementary and necessary dimensions of human life and flourishing. All right? There is such a thing as, an ex, as, a, as something we could properly call the exterior dimension of our creaturehood or of our life, and there is something that's properly called an interior dimension of our life. And... I'm not necessarily at this first register trying to be like, one's bad, one's good. I'm just trying to describe them, okay? At the second register of contrast, I do want to point to the priority of the interior life. And more importantly, to elucidate the hazards of neglecting our inner being in preference for a purely exterior or active life. All right, so for the first register, um, the exterior. In short, the exterior is the province of our own agency, which we have. We have something that's properly called agency. We are beings, creatures that can act. We have will and can choose, all right? And the exterior is the province of our own agency. These are rough definitions, all right? So there's nuance that I'm tempted to add here, but moving on. The exterior life is quasi-equivalent with activity, all right, with action. So here are some general descriptions. Our exterior life or the active life is talkative. I'm engaging in the exterior life as I speak to you right now. 
saying things. So it's our exterior life is, is talkative. Whether you are literally saying words, whether you are consuming someone else's speech, or whether you are just thinking, like actively thinking, uh, your thoughts are you talking to yourself silently or out loud. What would your thought be if it wasn't talking? Think about that for a minute. There isn't, when you're thinking, actively thinking, sussing something out, working through something, you're talking to yourself. What would your thought be if it wasn't talking? Anyway, moving on. That's a philosophical thought. Moving on. Uh, the exterior life is reactive. Uh, often hyper-reactive to external stimuli and happenings. It's busy or hurried. It's planning and productive. It is discursive in its thinking or knowing. It's analytical and problem-solving. In terms of prayer, active prayer or exterior prayer, roughly speaking, is its intercessory prayer. I mean, it's prayer in which we say stuff. Whether what we're doing is thanking God for stuff, or what we're doing is asking for stuff, or what we're doing is praising God for things, it is articulate in some way, shape, or form. So broadly speaking, I think we could say it's, it's intercessory. That's what active or exterior prayer is. And again, to be sure, like intercessory prayer is a very good thing. Uh, after we, I mean, we've already started doing it tonight, uh, we're going to con continue doing it in the songs that we sing. I'm going to sit in the back and pray for anybody that wants to be prayed for afterwards. So intercessory prayer is a good thing, something that the Holy Spirit animates. In fact, it's what Paul's been doing in these verses, right? And yet, I would suggest that the thing Paul's praying for in his intercessory prayer, that if the Ephesians and we are going to receive the gift that he's interceding for on their behalf, we're going to have to do it in a posture that's slightly different than an intercessory, active, exterior posture. So moving on. The, in, the interior, our, our inner being, uh, and I'm going to say like the contemplative, broadly speaking, the contemplative dimension of our life. What contemplation means, Christianly speaking, very broadly speaking, is being with God in our inner being. Right? That's what contemplation means, or the contemplative life or inner life means, is being with God in our inner being. Contemplation does not mean pondering things or sussing them out or thinking hard, even though that's the way the word gets used sometimes. Like Someone's like, you know, I don't know, contemplate whatever the thing is. But that's not what we're talking about when I say contemplation tonight. And like in the ancient tradition of Christian spirituality, that's not what contemplation means. It's not thinking, pondering, or sussing things out. It's not thinking hard. Nonetheless, contemplation does entail and even is a kind of knowing. But it is a knowledge that's indexed relationally and in terms of intimacy and cleaving rather than in terms of mere comprehension or understanding. In contemplation, we choose, so our agency still matters in contemplation. But in contemplation, we choose silence and stillness, which is a different kind of thing to choose than virtually any other 
action that we might choose with our agency. In contemplation, we choose silence and stillness. In fact, one of the most concise but sufficient descriptions I've heard of Christian contemplation uh, is this, quote, it's a series of successive silences. The contemplation is a series of successive silences. Contemplation is not the lack of action, but in a sense it is the renunciation of our agency and will and preference for God's person. So we renounce, we renounce our will in preference for God's person and implicitly for God's will. Not my will, but your will be done is a contemplative description of prayer. In contemplative prayer, if there's something that needs doing or saying, it's God that needs to do or say the thing. Again, an author, a Christian author who describes the interior life, um, the inner life, he describes it as, as a process of entering into the silent land. And this author points out, quote, many sincerely devout people never enter the silent land because their attention is so riveted to devotions and words. Good things, right? If there is not a wordy stream of talking to God and asking God for this and that, these people feel that they are not praying. I often ask people when I hang out with them about prayer, about what's going on in their life with God and whether or not they're praying. And I find that invariably, this is I'm sure as true for me as it is for everyone, so this isn't a criticism of anyone, but usually it seems to me that whenever we Christians ask each other about prayer, to the extent that we do that anymore, it seems like it's kind of out of fashion now, but to the extent that we do that, our, our impulse is to tell people what we have been saying to God. We begin to enumerate all our words for what we've been saying to God. But what I'm really asking for when I ask people what's going on with them in prayer is I'm asking about what God's doing, really. And I'm asking what it's like to be with God in prayer. Contemplative and intercessory prayer have a complementary relationship. So the, the inner life and the active life, the contemplative life and the exterior life, devotionally speaking, these things are, are mutually reinforcing. They're supposed to be. They constitute a kind of cycle. They lead into and out of one another. So, typical practices of contemplative prayer in Christian traditions, like they start with an intercessory prayer, they move into contemplative prayer, and then they lead to interceding in some way, shape, or form. At any rate, none of this tells you how to do contemplative prayer, because I don't have time to do that right now. But if you want to learn contemplative prayer, we can teach you how to do that. So the second, that was my first value-neutral register of contrast, right? The second register of contrast between interior and exterior, or between the active and the contemplative, this is under the heading broadly of the hazards of neglecting our inner being. Okay, so here's another way of drawing the contrast. The inner being is strengthened by the Spirit to be a habitation for Christ, right? According to Ephesians chapter 3. The inner being is strengthened by the Spirit to be a habitation for Christ, whereas the exterior being is liable to be nothing more than decorations. The inner being is strengthened by the Spirit to be the habitation, the very dwelling place of Jesus, whereas the exterior being is liable, not necessarily, but is liable to be 
nothing more than a decoration. The exterior being, in fact, is liable to be no being at all. It's liable to be a fabrication or our own invention. The person that we are presenting to the world and the person, the construction of which occupies so much of our energy and anxiety and attention can be often nothing more than an elaborate project of a performance and imagining it for our own eyes and the eyes of other people. This may or may not be a helpful illustration, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Um, I am a, a pretty hardcore bow hunter. Um, this isn't really a hunting story as much as it is like a story about how being a hardcore bow hunter makes me a certain kind of consumer. Um, so I, like everything I buy for the kind of bow hunting I do comes with a sticker. Does that make sense? Like wherever it's shipped from, whatever the little company is that I'm buying from, and oftentimes they are these like very niche companies that make very specialized like climbing gear or uh, really specific like um, tool steel, uh, broadheads or whatever it is, like it's all pretty niche stuff um, for people that are as much of a badass in the woods as I am. Um, and <laughs> so it all comes with stickers. The, the stuff I get from these companies all comes with stickers. And um, the temptation for me is always to be like, I'm going to put this sticker on my truck for people to see how effing cool I am. So that when I pull into whatever the wildlife management area is where I'm going to hunt, people are going to be like, wow, he's this kind of guy he's, because he's using that kind of gear, right? So like my temptation is to like decorate, um, not just like wear the brands on my body, but to like decorate other things that I own with the stickers. Um, similarly, I mean, I am periodically tempted to get a tattoo of, I don't know, any number of things, like a, a specific species of native trout, for example, something I've entertained getting tattooed on my arm at some point. Yeah. Which would be a really cool tattoo, right? Um, but what I'm trying to point to here is like, what's up with this impulse to decorate ourselves and our stuff? Uh, I've decided in my life, like, I actually don't get rid of those stickers, but the only sticker I put on my truck is the parking sticker for the Wesley. And the only reason I even do that is because I want to be able to have people towed that don't have a parking sticker on their vehicle at the Wesley. And I can't be a hypocrite, right? So I deliberately, I very vigilantly don't put any stickers on my truck. Um, the only place I let myself put stickers is on my coolers. <laughs> uh, because most people don't see them most of the time, but I also can't quite bear to let go of them. But anyway, because they are cool stickers. But anyway, I don't indulge that temptation, not because God would be mad at me if I advertise to everyone the cool hunting gear that I use, but because I already am so deeply tempted like we all are to be way more deeply attentive with this fabricated vision of myself that I think is me than I am with my inner being. Likewise, I got rid of Instagram. And I would suggest that it's hard to have much of an inner life, not just for me, but for most people, to have an inner life if you have very much involvement in social media at all. And again, not because God hates social media and he's mad at you if you have a social media account, 
But because what is social media other than this algorithm-driven game in which you are making an avatar of yourself, like a literal avatar of yourself that you display for you to look at. It's always actually first and foremost for you to look at and for you to look at other people looking at. And the reason I don't do that stuff anymore is, again, it's not because it's like evil and God hates it and it's a sin. It's because like it's wearisome. It's wearying to live always constructing and reconstructing this decorated self. And listen, those are just the most obvious examples of the way that we are enamored with a fabricated external life. Like they're literal, like physical examples of what we do in way more subtle and pernicious and self-deceptive ways all the time. We decorate ourselves with all kinds of stuff. And to an extent, we cannot help but live with a merely like self-constructed, decorated existence if we are not deeply and deliberately attending our inner life, if we're not entering into our inner being. It is exceedingly good news that the Spirit strengthens us in our inner being. It means that there's a place from which we literally can never be separated from God, right within ourselves. Like, there isn't anywhere you can go that you can flee from his presence. And it's because he's made you the habitation of Jesus. Your very person is the habitation of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That is exceedingly good news. We are a space into which we can enter and find Jesus. And what Christ does when we meet him in our inner being is draw us in turn into the breadth and length and height and depth of his love for us so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And that itself is enough. I just want to stop and say that right there. That already is satisfying. Whether you remember that Jesus is satisfying or not, that the very person of Christ fills you up, that's already enough. But it's not the only thing that happens when we encounter Jesus. Because what that also means is that our inner being, surprisingly, is also the place that we meet ourselves. Like the self that is us, like the one that God actually made, not the one that we're making. There's no way to be outwardly who God made you to be. And by the way, look, so much of our exterior decoration is us. It's like we, we describe that as though we are expressing ourselves. As though it we're coming from an interior place. And we're just projecting an exterior thing. And I think that probably can happen. But a lot of the time, what we describe as self-expression is not anything more than self-construction. You can't express yourself until you know it's the real one. That's actually you. Our inner being is where we meet ourselves. Because there's no way to be outwardly who God made us really to be, except... And moving inward to find that person that is loved by God. To find that person that is engulfed in the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. That's the only version of us that actually does exist. The one that Jesus loves. The one that he made. And knowing yourself as loved by Christ makes it possible 
for your exterior active life to be real and free and non-anxious because it's rooted and grounded in Christ's love. So long as God's love in our life is only a matter of the active life, as long as it's only a matter of the of this exterior exertion of our will, we don't actually know the love of Christ. We never are actually full. I ask people all the time, do you know that God loves you? And I ask that question because I don't think most people do. I know I, I know I didn't know God loved me most of the time I was a Christian until I got real waylaid by God when I was a junior at Tech at this ministry. And I still, most of the time, am as likely to forget it and not know it as I am to really know. I ask people all the time, do you know that God loves you? And what I find in people's answers is that people know about God loving them, but they don't know themselves as loved by God. And you can't think yourself or read yourself into knowing that God loves you. And you're at a really wonderful threshold in your life with God if you've come to the place that you realize that you know it, but you don't know it. And I, I see people get to this place too, where they're like, I realize that I don't really know that I'm loved by God, but I, I can't make it click. And that's right, you can't. You can't teach yourself that God loves you. For that, you need the very person of Christ. For that, you need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit with power in your inner being. For that, you need Jesus dwelling in your heart, drawing you into the unfathomable expanse of his love. At this table, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives us himself, his flesh and his blood. So recognize when you come receive these gifts that the God you meet here is a God that wants you to be full.